good morning, and, and I, this is the, for some of you, might be your first session of the Harbor, first Harbor ever, but the Pepperdine Bible Lectures that have been going for 70 years. And again, how many of you, is this your first year? Raise your hand, look around. There's about maybe 40% of the first year. Welcome, we're glad you're here. You're in for a real treat this year because the theme is the Holy Spirit. And Leonard Allen is one of the Stone Campbell movement's best theologians, and I would say also exegetes, and, and historian, theologian, exegetes. And he wrote a book called Poured Out, which I'm holding upside down. Now I'm going to hold it right side up. Maybe that's a good metaphor to hold it upside down where it can be poured out. But afterwards, Jason Fike from ACU Press and Leafwood is right here, and you can purchase the book from him if you'd like. If you choose to go on, hurry to your class <coughs> next to the Starbucks, you can go to their booth and purchase the book uh, and other great books from the publisher. $13. And he takes cards. Everything he takes. Even yen, shilling. Live chickens. That's right. And I want to introduce Holly Allen, Leonard's wife right here. He may already have that planned in his thing, but... His wife is here, and she's also a great scholar in her own right and teaches at Lipscomb University, where Leonard is the dean uh, of the School of Theology there. And so I want to open with prayer, and would you please pray with me? Holy and loving God and creator of heaven and earth, the universe, Jesus Christ through whom everything was made. We thank you, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who raised Jesus from the dead. You are the good shepherd. You are a loving God, a mighty Savior, our Lord. And you sent the Holy Spirit. And we thank you for allowing yourself to remain in us and through us and go before us and walk beside us. And we pray this morning, Holy Spirit, would you come and do what only you can do and through your instrument of Leonard Allen, I pray that you will move our hearts, whether it's to learn more about your spirit, whether it's to experience more of your spirit, whether it's to stop being afraid of your spirit. Whatever it may be that we need, would you please help us each take a step this morning? And would you please, to that end, give Leonard Allen a gift of preaching and teaching as he presents this morning. And let us hear with our ears, understand with our hearts, and live with our lives. And we pray through Jesus' name. Amen. 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 coming this morning. Um, it's a, it's a, I felt all the way through that this it's a rather audacious thing to write about the Holy Spirit. Um, but it, it, it's Mike Cope that, that kind of wrote me into this. You may have heard him say last night that about a year and a half ago, he told me that it would be nice if I were to um, have something like this for this event. And um, I because he's a good friend and it's hard to say no. Um, I said yes, but I didn't tell anybody I was working on this for until maybe Jan this past January because I wasn't sure I could finish it. I wasn't sure I could do it. So um, the Lord gave me strength to do this and um, it's been a deeply enriching experience for me um, to do this work over the last year and a half or so. But this didn't really uh, just begin a year and a half ago, actually, as you might guess. Um, the, the, the seeds of this were planted actually in 2015 when I was asked to do a couple of lectures on the Holy Spirit at a special event at Rochester College in, in Detroit. And I got some warm encouragement there from Amos Young, who is from Fuller Seminary, and it kind of planted the seeds of this work. But even behind that, for 
20 or 25 years, um, I've been doing work and reflection and writing on, um, as I worked on the history of Churches of Christ, uh, on the, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit in the history of Churches of Christ. That laid a lot of the groundwork, the foundation for, um, for, for this work. Um, my plan this morning, since we have an hour this year instead of 45 minutes like last year, is to maybe try to use roughly the first 30 minutes to lay out my basic thesis or argument of this work and then just kind of open it up for conversation. That's my plan. Now, it, it might uh, get off track a little bit, but that's, I would really love to have conversation with you um, about this. Um, I uh, think about a, a comment made, oh, probably over 50 years ago now by uh, a person that wrote a book on the Trinity in the New Testament who said that the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, I'm using his words, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit has long been a Cinderella of theology. Uh, that is, it has suffered from much neglect and has always been one of the most difficult doctrines to discuss. Cinderella, you know, you know what he's referring to here, right? This uh, left out of the party, uh, had the kind of a hooker crook show up at the ball. And so it has been with the doctrine of the spirit, not only in the last couple of hundred years, but I would argue over much of Christian history, going back to at least the fourth century. And that's part of my my argument uh, in the book. But it seems clear to me that by the latter 20th century, by our time right now, something had changed. I mean, you sense that, don't you? Uh, that, uh, and as a result of this change, the doctrine of the Spirit no longer remains the kind of awkward stepchild of theology. It is, in fact, risen to the center of focus. And it has done so in a way that is, I would say, is unprecedented in the history of Christianity. Some, over the last 30 years or so, I would argue, I have argued, that the doctrine of the Holy Spirit has come to the focus and forefront in a way it never has before in all of Christian history. And my question and this is the question I kind of began with here. And my question was, why? Why has that happened? There's, there's got to be something going on that uh, brings a long, long neglected aspect of the Christian faith right to the forefront. And so think with me for a few minutes here about, at least here my reason for why this, this dramatic change has occurred. Why the unprecedented interest in and focus on the Holy Spirit? Now, let me give a little qualifier here because you think immediately, well, I mean, there's been this Pentecostal movement for a hundred years, and then there was in the 1960s, you know, there was the charismatic movement that uh, touched most most Protestant denominations, including the Roman Catholic Church. And in the 1980s and 90s, there was what Peter Wagner called the third wave of the Holy Spirit that uh, worked through a lot of evangelical churches. So what's different now? I mean, what, okay, what I would say is um, all that's true, but in this more recent time, Interest in and openness to the Holy Spirit has been breaking out of these historic channels. I mean, yeah, the Pentecostal, modern Pentecostal movement began in roughly 1900. And then in 1906, there was the famous Azusa Street Revival right here in Los Angeles that became sort of defined classic Pentecostalism. And, um, and then in the 1960s, uh, you know, the, the charismatic movement, and Britain was called the Renewal Movement. Um, the, the Catholic Charismatic Revival began in 1967, and shortly after that, uh, Pope Paul, the, John Paul VI said this, this, this movement among Catholics is God's gift to the church. 
Uh, and in recent times, uh, most current figures I've seen, the estimates are that among the one billion Roman Catholics in the world, that fully 250 million of them are charismatic Catholics. Most of them in the global south, of course. <coughs> And the, the, the figures uh, uh, I've seen recently, uh, it's hard to get statistics on this, but the, the best I've seen are that in the world today, or in, you know, in the last decade, there are roughly uh, well over 600 million who would be in the category of neo-charismatic in the world, including the Han Chinese movement of 80 million or so in China, and the African independent churches of uh, 55 to 60 million or so. It's astonishing. So interest in and openness to the spirit has been breaking out of these, uh, uh, this historic Pentecostal charismatic stream. And indeed, I would suggest that the distinction between charismatic and non-charismatic is beginning to blur somewhat. Pentecostals and charismatics are becoming more self-critical theologically, offering some I mean, corrective to excesses and the historic non-charismatic or anti-charismatic streams are realizing with new force that the Spirit's presence and power are not secondary but central to the Christian life. And, to the mission, and if we're going to be on the mission of God, it's vital. And we have more and more sort of mainstream, well-known theologians today saying things like this. Listen. The church lives by, not by savvy, worldly wisdom and techniques for church growth, but rather lives moment by moment in every time and place, utterly dependent on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Thus, the Holy Spirit is nothing less than a life and death matter for the people of God. That quote comes from Stanley Harawas, one of America's most prominent theologians. Now, I, I, um, I've wrestled with this question of why this change. And that's what I really want to start with this morning. Uh, and uh, I would suggest at least five reasons for this change. I'm just going to mention three. The others are in, all five are in the book. You know, leave a little bit, you know, a little bit for you to discover there. Um, I want to just mention three today uh, to give you a sense of this. Three reasons for this dramatic shift in this new focus on the Holy Spirit in world Christianity. The first, and I would argue the most significant reason, is that Christendom has collapsed. And that in America, which has not had official Christendom, uh, America's functional Christendom has sharply receded. I believe this focus on the Spirit is happening now because of the growing sense, and surely you all feel this, the growing sense that we are on mission now as Christians in a new landscape. After Christendom, and here in America, um, after a kind of functional Christendom that we know has receded. Um, the cultural status and power that Christianity, that Christianity had in America from about the 1850s to the 1950s or 60s um, has sharply receded. Christians of all stripes are now being forced, often against our desires, to disengage from the old habits of establishment that have enabled us to feel so comfortable and so at home in American culture. And as these old habits are being broken, they're being, they're being forced upon us. As our habits are being broken, Christians' true identity as strangers and exiles and pilgrims is being renewed. And ways of being the church more suitable to a diaspora community are emerging. Here's Stuart Murray's definition of post-Christendom that has become rather standard. Just a short sentence here, one sentence. 
Post-Christendom is the culture that emerges as the Christian faith loses coherence within a society that has been definitively shaped by the Christian story, and as the institutions that have been developed to express Christian convictions decline in influence. That's where we are. In Christendom, as you I hope well know, the church occupied a central and influential place in society. But after Christendom, we get pushed to the margins. Out of our um, accustomed and usual place of power and control in the culture. And that's where now increasingly we find ourselves here in the early 21st century. So let's be clear. Any sort of Christian establishment has decisively ended. Um, and Christians, Christianity's loss of cultural power here in our own nation is waking us up to the reality that we are in a missionary situation in our own culture, or in any culture for that matter. And this is forcing us to rethink a lot of things. Our mission, our theology, and the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. It's forcing us, often against our wishes, we now find ourselves more and more in a situation somewhat like that of the pre-Constantinian church of the first three centuries. Christians are being forced into a situation where they again must lean by faith on God's governance of history and not America's governance of history. And when that happens, um, we, have, we, we, keep, we, we have to ask, um, or we become to realize that, that we need power from our high. When we've been living more or less comfortably in a culture that has sanctioned our faith and even propped it up for us, what do we need the Holy Spirit for? Right. Except the, maybe the occasional sweetness of the Spirit's inner caresses. But when we find ourselves more and more on the margins, out of power, out of favor, faced with the status of strangers and exiles, it begins to dawn on us, as it is, that we truly need the power of God's Spirit if we intend to live on God's mission. Mm -hmm. So that's my first uh, reason why this unprecedented focus globally has occurred. Second, I would, a second reason I would suggest is the explosion of Christian faith in the global south that is what we used to call the two-thirds world or the third world. This explosion of Christian faith has been a key factor in this shift. Um, it's, this, this recovery has been greatly stimulated uh, by this reality. In the past several generations, Say since 1950, it's become becoming clear that Pentecostal, charismatic, and neo-charismatic and indigenous Christian movements have taken center stage in worldwide Christianity. Indeed, it's becoming very clear that the center of gravity of the Christian faith is shifting from the north and the west to the global south. And now, as Leslie Newbigin predicted 30 or 40 years ago, we see streams of missionaries coming from those, those wor that world to the West, asking the question, can the West be reconverted? These, um, these movements, it, I mean, it's, it's been an explosion. It's, it's astonishing if you begin to read the figures in the story. You read Philip Jenkins' book, book called The Next Christendom, for example. These, these new Christian movements around the, the global south are windswept, you might say, with the vibrancy and the unpredictability of the Holy Spirit. And it makes us very uncomfortable in the West. I, I thought of a line from Diana Butler Bass a few years ago in her book, and she said that uh, in the global south, they uh, can hardly keep up with the Spirit, 
in the West, we can hardly grasp the Spirit. <coughs> Philip Jenkins says that among these, this new Christendom in the global South, the most common, the most visible common feature is his, his line, the critical idea that God intervenes directly in everyday life. These churches haven't been disenchanted by Western secularism. They believe God is active every day, and they can hardly keep up with it. Um, so that's, that's my um, second reason. A third reason for this dramatic shift, I would argue, and this may surprise you, many of you, a bit, is um, the renewal of mission as a centerpiece of Christian faith. Now, um, this happened uh, beginning about mid-20th century. It's been a dramatic revolution in missionary theology, missional theology. Let me give a little backdrop to that for a second, though. The established churches of Christendom, um, think, think Europe here, state churches, think even Protestant reformers like Luther and Calvin in the 16th century, they still had state churches. Uh, they were defenders of Christendom. Um, within Christendom, mission as part of the church's task receded. I mean, um, because Christendom was all Christian. The only place to do mission was among people far, far away among the heathen. So um, beginning about the fourth century and, and, and afterwards, mission as a intentional central part of the church's life receded to the background. And indeed, when the Protestant Reformation came on the scene in the 16th century, the Luther and Calvin and, and the others explicitly rejected any such missional task. It's not our job, they said. They wanted to certainly restore a new focus on Scripture and the preaching of the Word and the proper uh, uh, administration of the sacraments for the sake of the church. But the church was defined essentially as a, as a kind of institution rather than a dynamic fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Uh, now, there, there were uh, often sort of renewal movements that sought to emerge over the centuries. Probably the largest of those in the modern period was the Wesleyan movement. John Wesley and what became modern Methodism in the 1730s, which was a very dynamic a movement that arose within the Christendom setting of, of, of England, but um, they were scorned and abused by the established churches, looked down upon. And uh, <coughs> their movement had to kind of go out on its own. And in the 19th century, early 19th century, there emerged uh, a, a kind of good, strong mission movement, missionary movement. But again, it happened mostly outside the established churches of Christendom through what we would call today parachurch organizations with laymen as the leader, not the pastors and ordained people. Um, but in the early to mid-20th century, a profound change happened in this front. In the understanding of Christian mission, mission came to be viewed not as one maybe important aspect of the church's life, but as the very centerpiece of what God is doing in the world. Mission, in this new or renewed understanding, was an attribute of the triune God. It's what God did most centrally. It's not that the church of Christ has a mission, it's that God, the, the mission of Christ has a what? A church. So in, in this view, the, the Father through the Spirit sends the Son into the world out of the depths of divine love the Spirit is poured out to continue that mission, and the Son 
sends his followers into the world in the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish that mission. <coughs> or to place it scripturally, Jesus prayed to his Father, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And later in John 20, he says to his disciples, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Mission now, by the mid-20th century or so, came to be understood as, here's a phrase, the Trinity in mission. And the shorthand term for this, you may have seen this, this term before, was the term missio dei, a Latin phrase that means the mission of God. I believe that this theological rediscovery is a, is a key factor in this new focus on the Holy Spirit. So, Here's what I want you to see um, in, in, what, uh, in this background I've been giving. In the emergence of Christendom as a new social arrangement in the 4th century down through almost the 20th century, uh, you have a diminishment of the focus on mission. And because the Holy Spirit is, in Scripture, the spirit of mission, guess what else you have? The diminishment of the focus on the Holy Spirit. And the key argument of my book is these two dimensions go hand in hand. If mission gets diminished, guess what? The focus on the spirit and empowerment for mission gets diminished. And the spirit becomes primarily something for my own inner life. Pietism, it's called. My own personal experience. Just me and the spirit of Jesus. The spirit in scripture, especially in Acts, it seems to me, is always the spirit that empowers and sends out the church on, on the mission of God to, to, to bring about shalom in the world. <clears throat> And so these two things, mission and the spirit, rise and fall, wax and wane in tandem with each other. And if we're in a social setting now in the West, where we are being forced to face up in a new way to the mission of God, since the state is going to prop us up for it, then we are also, almost as a matter of course, rediscovering, re crying out for the Spirit of God to empower us for that mission. That's my argument. And that's why I think right now, in these last 30 years or so, here after Christendom, after the decline of neo-Christendom in America, the Spirit has come roaring, as it were, to the center. The Spirit of mission. The missional Spirit of God. Okay, um, that's sort of my basic, it's those two things that got me going on this book. That question about why this, this amazing resurgence of the interest in the Holy Spirit in our time. And, um, and then in light of my answer to that, what I think is the answer to that, um, the close, close correspondence between the spirit and nation church. So I'd like to I'll just stop there for, and see if you'd like to engage that, maybe tease that out a little bit more, clarify that, have a question. I have a question. Yes. Would you go one step further and talk about why your book's title poured out? Out of the missionary spirit. Okay. What are, let me ask, what, what are the traditional, you all know this, what are the traditional images and metaphors for the Holy Spirit that you see a lot? Go, uh, what? Go figure. Go figure. Okay. 
Think, think visually. Baptism. What? Dove? Who said dove? A picture of water. Okay. Rain. Immersion. Okay. Fire. Fire. Wind. Yeah, wind. Okay, those are all biblical images. Um, and when the uh, when uh, Jason was asking me about what I, ideas for a cover for this, my only response was, I don't know, but I know I don't want uh, a dove or a fire. <laughs> um, so the poured out imagery um, seems to me, uh, and, and I, as I began to develop that idea, it, it, it struck me as, in, in scripture how common the image is in the prophets, especially in that section of Isaiah that looks for a new exodus to come, led by a new Messiah. And then, of course, Jesus picks up that, that imagery, rivers of streams of living water, um, and, of course, Pentecost, uh, the image of being poured out. And so that the, pour, the poured out imagery is a, it's, it's not a meager image. It's a lavish image. It's not some, the Spirit is not something that's given to a few wild fanatics, you know, lone uh, leaders. It's poured out on, uh, uh, Peter says, on everyone. Men and women and old and young and slaves and free and and Peter himself didn't get that for for a while as to the radical implications of that pouring out. Um, so um, I, the, the lavishness of it, it seems to me, uh, is what really to me was, was hard hitting and and wonderful. Yeah. So in my ministry, I've wrestled with this. Um, with this need for the Holy Spirit in mission with the work that I do. And, and in that wrestling, I've come out of it, as I tell people, I'm a flaming Pentecostal who doesn't speak in tongues. And the reason that I don't isn't because I haven't tried to be available to it, but because for whatever reason, God hasn't given it to me. And I'm okay with that. But I'd be curious to know on a personal level, how, how have you wrestled with that? Are you are you prepared to come out on the other side of this saying you're Pentecostal? And if so, how do you introduce that to a tradition like the Re Restoration Movement that has not been Pentecostal? Yeah, and see, okay, let me. That that's a. I was supposed to put that question. I come up tomorrow. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll stand with you, buddy. That's all I'm saying. No, okay. Obviously, this. One of the reasons this doctrine is difficult to deal with is not only its neglect historically, but the hot button and controversial nature of some of the issues associated with it, where there have been camp, hard and fast camps that have all staked their claim out there. And I decided and chose in doing this not to try not to enter that territory very much. Uh, that is to say, to try my best to reframe this doctrine in a way, biblically and historically, in a way where I would hope most readers would come out saying something like, of course, God is at work in the world. Often, most often in regular, normal, everyday ways, and sometimes in amazing and wonderful ways. Okay? That, you know, is there a big controversy about that? <laughs> yes. God is at work in the world to fulfill the mission of Christ through the Holy Spirit? And that that uh, is sort of unpredictable and surprising and sometimes uh, confounding and sometimes wonderful? And I would also want to add to this uh, in light of, I mean, there's a whole discussion here, it seems to me, about um, just rooted in the whole the history of 20th century Pentecostalism, which is a kind of a mess in, in, in a lot of ways, theologically. Um, that um, um, where was I going with that? Um, uh, see, I would say, for example, let me say this: that Pentecostalism historically was a reaction against several things. Things are always a reaction against things. And it was a reaction against uh, at least two things that I'm aware of. One is the widespread nominal Christianity that, that went with Christendom. And they thought, hmm, I think being a disciple of Jesus is a lot more than that. 
And secondly, the sense that uh, it seems in the New Testament that conversions were fairly strong and dramatic sometimes. What happened to that? What happened to that life-turning, life-changing encounter with Jesus that, that thrust you out on a radical and dangerous mission? That's, I think, what was behind Pentecostalism and its emergence. Of course, its roots were in, in, the, in the Methodist movement and in that more radical edge of Methodism called the Holiness Movement, which talked about, a, about two levels, two works of grace, one at conversion and one at some later time when you got really fired up and sanctified. Again, the same issue, reacting to a kind of Christendom setting where a lot of discipleship was, was purely nominal. And, you know, and some of the Pentecostal um, theologians and uh, biblical scholars have tried to correct some of the ways theologically that Pentecostals explain that. You know, uh, tongue speaking as in what they call initial evidence of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. And many of those in the world today, probably maybe the majority of those in the world today, you put under the category of neo-charismatic or Pentecostal, would reject that original classic Pentecostal explanation. Just simply reject it as being not properly rooted in Scripture. Um, so uh, another stab at your question from a little different angle, and then we'll maybe come back tomorrow. Um, the, uh, the Baptist theologian James McClendon tried to come to terms with this, this amazing worldwide, very diverse Pentecostal movement, and he said, what, what, what do we need to learn? What is it about this movement that maybe is for all of us? And um, he says, um, he said it is two things. He says uh, it is, to put it simply, ecstasy and fellowship. Ecstasy and fellowship. By ecstasy, he, he's referring to the kind of being caught up out of yourself into in, in worship, in the kind of some of the ways, of the dramatic and vigorous ways that Pentecostals or Charismatics worship. A kind of communion with God through the Spirit that takes one outside of oneself. And then secondly, the kind of the kind of close and vibrant fellowship in the community that seems to accompany a Pentecostal charismatic kind of um, situation. And then the strong evangelistic outreach that goes with it. And he says, yeah, yeah, those aren't just marks of Pentecostalism. He says, that, that's, those are marks of the Spirit of God in the people of God. And I thought that was a helpful way of, of coming at that as well. Okay, maybe more tomorrow on <laughs> that question. So, um, I'd like to make a distinction in perspective. Um, so, um, between um, viewing events from God's perspective and perspective of human institutions. Um, and, and the reason is because you use the language of the spirit being receding and reemerging. Um, so I, I, I have trouble believing that God's spirit was not active for 1,600 years. Oh, right? I should, I should so, have you. Yeah, and I think I, I agree with you in the sense that you're using the language from the perspective of the Christendom, the established um, hierarchical type human structures. And I was wondering if you could comment on where you saw the spirit moving in the interim periods. What were the things that God was doing yeah. during this time? That's a pretty complex question. What I, I in, um, in chapter two of the book, it's the historical chapter, I lay out a typology of five different clusters of spirit traditions in Christianity. Um, and they are, I call them the Christendom traditions, which would be the, the vast majority up through at least uh, the modern, early modern period. Uh, radical traditions, which uh, would, be the, the, would come out of the, the Anabaptist or Radical Reformation, where the focus was on, was on empowered discipleship, not, not, not experience, not, not so much sort of pietism, but empowerment to live out the radical way of Jesus. That's the second. A third, I would call renewal traditions, which would encompass the, the various forms, many forms of pietism, where it becomes primarily an inward experience uh, in many ways. 
And fourthly, what I call modernist traditions, where, um, uh, or you could say uh, liberal traditions, that sought to accommodate modern rationality to it. Um, either collapsing the spirit into words or disconnecting the spirit from Jesus Christ to be involved in all the religions of the world. And then number five is the Pentecostal charismatic traditions in the 20th century, which are very, very diverse. Uh, and I make the, the point briefly there that um, despite whatever limitations and critiques you can bring to all five of these, the spirit is abound by those traditions and has always been at work transcending them. Through them and transcending them. A more personal example I would give there to that is that in my own church growing up, we never talked or heard about the Holy Spirit. But didn't mean the Holy Spirit wasn't working vigorously in our church. I mean, we were being formed as disciples. We had saints in our church. That is people, you know, who've been walking with Jesus for 50 years that we could look at and say, I want to be like that. We had communion every week, you know. We, we had, we sang vigorous songs from the Spirit, at least one rendering of Paul's language. We were being formed by the Spirit. The problem was we didn't have a grammar to be more explicit about what was happening. And that's kind of limiting. It's good to have, to speak right, to have a grammar that can welcome and talk about the Spirit in a balanced and whole way. We didn't have that. But we still, thank God, had the Spirit. So that's that's one way to come at that. Yes, sir? This is wanting to ask you to comment maybe on a couple of texts. Uh, you mentioned John 21. John doesn't include the Pentecostal, you know, narrative, and he has Luke, Luke does, but you almost see in, in John this missile uh, impartation of the Holy Spirit. Um, you know, in John's picture of it, it's a little bit different than Luke's picture of it. But um, I, I guess in commenting on those two passages, Luke 21 or John 21, and then the you know the Pentecost narrative in Luke. Um, is that, is that basically the same? No, no it's, it's pretty, a bit different. Uh, the the Johannine Pentecost is sometimes called and the Lucan Pentecost, yeah. Um, I don't think they're incompatible by any means, but different, yeah. Different occasions, different sendings. Um, um, in, in Luke, it's, it's more, much more public, more dramatic, uh, more directly impactful, it seems, on church's mission mission, and the, the spirit there poured out in Pentecost becomes in the Acts of the Apostles a constant uh, um, driving energy, force, and guide on the mission of God. I think the, the word the spirit is used 59 times in the book of Acts. Um, and it's hard to be hard to exaggerate the role of the spirit, it seems to me, in the early church's mission. And follow that up, just uh, the Acts the Acts passage, you know, they're going to be empowered. Acts 1 8, yeah. you know, going to be empowered to be witnesses. Right. And then, uh, just a, a fresh study recently, and following the pouring out of the Spirit there in Acts 2, uh, and then when, you know, they were filled with the Spirit and they spoke in the different languages, um, why, why was that done? Um, or perhaps a Pentecostal worldview, uh, it is some spiritual experience but yet doesn't it make sense that uh, that mission that the spirit gave those apostles to speak in those languages to declare the wonders of God is very clear what that spirit was why they were speaking in tongues is to give them the ability to declare the wonders of God in the languages of those yeah, I, I think that's probably the true in Acts it, it may be not, not as clear in Paul in some of the use of glossolalia. Um, in fact, some would argue that the whole, even in the, uh, the Romans 8, 26, 28 area of the, the groanings the Spirit does would be a form of, of, of tongues. Some would argue, Gordon Fee would argue that. So there's, a, I think, a diversity there uh, of, the, of the nature of so-called uh, tongues, gift of tongues in the New Testament. 
Uh, and I, I do think there were some uh, unique and unrepeatable elements there in the original Pentecostal experience. Uh, we, could, we could talk more about that. But, yeah, John. So in layman's terms, my mind is blown <laughs> in regards to your conversation of mission and spirit being linked. And as, and as we lose touch with mission, the spirit component decreasing. So, so not to avoid controversy in my own local fellowship as anybody else, but to describe how our preaching and teaching must become better with mission to increase the conversation of the Holy Spirit um, yeah. as, as a byproduct of it. Not just, I mean, I, again, I have no qualms with coming at it just with good theology towards the Holy Spirit, but to, to increase our missional component yeah. of our preaching that will naturally introduce that our people will not be able to not see it's involved. Let me share with you in that regard a, a well-known quote from oh, 80 years ago from the uh, theologian Emil Brunner. You've probably heard this before. He says, the church exists by mission just as a fire exists by burning. Where there is no mission, there is no church. And where there is neither church nor mission, there is no faith. So, I would, I would say in response to yours that as a church's sense of participating in God's mission declines, mm. the spirit is quenched and the church will weaken. The church will become club-like, inward-focused, comfortable, squeamish about outsiders, and finally bored and sleepy. That's what happens. And in this season of renewal of mission and the spirit, churches, I would say, in the West are being shaken. And many will die. Mm -hmm. um, the impulse is very strong to control the spirit, to, to, to retain the spirit by our traditions, by our own personal tastes and sensibilities, and the deep assumptions of the Western culture, which have been very hard open to the spirit. This statement on not speaking in tongues and not being adverse to it, and I know people and individuals and, my, and myself who have pursued to some extent, I've prayed through the book of Acts, and in the book of Acts, there are miracles all the time with the Holy Spirit. No question about that to me. And so... The evidence, if we see, uh, seek it, the, the, where is it from the standpoint? Because in the churches of Christ, of course, and I grew up in, in that fellowship. Is that? So, are you saying what do we do with all that in Acts? No, I'm more. Yeah, well, yeah, I guess I, I would say that in Acts for today. Um. Well, I, I would freely, first of all, say that there are some aspects of uh, the, the earliest Christian mission in Acts with the apostles that are unique and unrepeatable. Right. Uh, but that doesn't uh, mean that everything just stopped. Uh, you know, all, all that just just stopped. Um, and, you know, issues like um, speaking in tongues, to me, aren't very important. I, I mean, yeah, it's way down the list of, of issues. It's, it's, it's a private thing, mostly, and um, um, you know, I, I would put that under the category of when, when Paul says, you know, uh, um, pray in the Spirit with all kinds of prayers and requests. All kinds. There are all kinds of prayers in the Spirit. Uh, that's probably one of them. But speaking in tongues yeah. is not the you know, yeah. interest to me. The miracles that go with almost well, everything. Yeah, okay. Um, let me just, here, here's one way to come at that, too. Um, I mean, in, in, the, in the West, um, in the modern West, we have made this very, very sharp, clear distinction between natural and supernatural. That was invented, you might say, in about the 17th or 18th century. That's not the, how the Bible views God's engagement with the world. In the modern view, miracles either don't happen at all, or when they do, they have, they're like, an, like a, uh, a kind of... Um, uh, an attack from the outside, 
it blows a hole in our little brass canopy. That, that's, to me, that's a more modern way of thinking about God's interaction with his creation than a biblical way. I think in a, in a, in a biblical understanding, God is constantly sustaining and engaging his world. And sometimes in ways that aren't the usual ways. So, number one, I would say we've got a, that's part of our problem in the West is we have a, a kind of modern worldview that doesn't allow much engagement. Mm. Um, and, and that's that's one of the I think one of the big the big issues of, of recovery that we face. Yes, they're always they're always kind of charlatans and claims about this, that, and the other. But I would say uh, there's a professor of New Testament at Asbury Seminary uh, named somebody help me out here. What? What? Keener? Yeah, Craig Keener has written two large volumes entitled Miracles. It's a biblical study of miracles, but it also has a long section of uh, testimonials to, uh, to miracles around the world today. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's a reputable book. Um, so, uh, you know, there, there, there are ways for us to, to come at this, I think, in some fresh ways that maybe open up. I agree with that, but my problem is that there was not a miracle that Jesus did that if someone said that's not a miracle. There's not a miracle in the New Testament uh, in the Acts. By it was 40 years he was this way and he was cured. There just aren't those things in my experience today. Now that's the question I have. Yeah, I don't uh, really have time for or even have a good answer for that right now. Um, I think there are various, several issues involved around our, our Western way of thinking there, um, and uh, it's 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 worth, I think, a lot of a lot of thought and conversation. Uh, who had a, somebody had a hand up for a while? Who had a hand up for a while? Okay. I just did the gentleman a moment ago and others. Wonderful. Used the term functional Christian, but Christendom, and uh, the breakdown of that. I wonder if it's isolated in our movement uh, but as, as our movement has collapsed and other denominations have collapsed there's this this uh, mixing that's occurred and we, we grew up in a, a group that was very yeah. uh, knowledge based where, where you look at the other groups in Christian in the US they may have other giftings um, that, that kind of brings this yeah, let me respond to a couple of things there. First of all, the term functional Christendom. I simply mean by that uh, that uh, Christian faith is not established by law in our right. society. But though it's not established by law, it's, it, was, it, was, it was strongly supported by the institutions of the culture, uh, ranging from Sunday blue laws to you know, all kinds of other things. Uh, that has not vanished, but it's sharply receded. And, it, and not surprisingly, it seems to me, we've entered into what some call a post-denominational era, where denominational label, that, that old denominational map doesn't work very well anymore. Um, and um, that, in some ways, that should, might should cheer us a little bit, because we've been trying to say non-denominational for a long, long time. And we might want to kind of be involved in the conversation. <laughs> well, someone once told me that we shouldn't be considering ourselves non-denominational. Let's consider ourselves pre-denominational. <laughs> uh, Gary. So uh, people in our movement would probably be asking at this point, how can, how can we be more open to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives? Would it be correct to say that uh, your point is that what we just need to do is become more involved in the mission and the Spirit will come? Yeah, I think it, it's hard to tell which begins and which uh, follows. The Spirit will awaken us to mission, and being on mission will awaken us to our need for the Spirit. Um, and I think some, and some, some good, more robust theology to help guide us in that. But yes, it's, it's, a, it's a deeply reciprocal relationship is what I'm arguing. Yeah. Mm. Uh, let me, I'm, sorry, let me. I know, I've already answered. 
you know, mine, I'd like to make some observations. Uh, I go to a church in Las Cruces right now, and our, it's, we're, we, we're defined as a community group at this time. Uh, we're memorizing the eighth chapter of Romans. And I've noticed that when you, to memorize, you gotta say something 40, 50 times. <laughs> I, but when you say, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, say that enough, eventually you actually start to believe it. And when you go through every verse in that chapter, you actually start to believe what it says. And I came to the realization that when Paul wrote things, he didn't say, well, this isn't quite right, but they'll be able to figure it out. I started to read the Bible in a completely different way. And as I was putting these things in my heart, and I would know an entire chapter Spirit would bring, I would just wake up one morning and then now these connections are just happening and just right, I don't no reason, they're just happening and when we were talking about the Holy Spirit groaning I always had questions about that, I understand it better now more than I've ever understood in my life and we have never and never in my life have I heard anybody say what the law of the Spirit of life is never heard and I would ask all these questions, and the only answers I would get were rationalizations how we can quench the spirit. And uh, even when they talk about, we have defined death as a separation from God, but now that I've got Romans 8 in my head, I believe Adam and Eve actually did die because they were immortal. God gave them a choice. You can choose life, you can choose death. They chose death. They lost their immortal life in Romans 8, it says that if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin. That's the garden. Your spirit is alive because of Christ, and he'll give life to your mortal bodies. So we're walking around, we're alive, but we're all physically dead. And life will be put into our mortal bodies. But you see, the whole point is, when we start to make definitions of things, then we're telling God, I'm sorry you're wrong about this. I understand it a little bit better than you do. Well, let me say that what you just said is a good, is a really wonderful testimony to the power of, of the Spirit and the Word right, as they work together. I remember N.T. Wright saying some time ago, if he were on a desert island and he'd have three chapters of Scripture with them uh, that were saved, Romans 8 would be one of them. <laughs> one, more, one more question. Whenever you presented your three, um, the, the, the three uh, roots of this, did you present those in an ordinal sense that that the that, that the collapse of Christendom in the West? Would you say that led to the global South, which led Our, to? I do. I would say that, what to me, is the most important reason. Okay. For this dramatic change, and so do you, it sets up some of the others. And in, 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 in that, do you think what's going on is that whenever, as the as as the institution and even the academy collapse, that there aren't people in, in somewhere as people are, are reading or going to scripture and saying, the life of Jesus should be normative for me. There, I, we're not excusing ourselves from the Sermon on the Mount right. in those different ways, and that is is is, is what's leading yeah. to discovery of yes. a power source for them. Right, and it, of course in Christendom, you see the Sermon on the Mount became a standard for the elite. Right. For the higher class, the, almost like the monastic class of Christians who were really serious about following Jesus. And for the rest, you know, you had the sacraments. Um, but, but, you know, in the, in the radical tradition, they would say, no, the Sermon on the Mount is the, the picture of what life in Christ and discipleship looks like for everyone. And you, so, and they would say, if, if you ask, well, how can we do this? This seems impossible. Uh, John Yoder says, well, it is impossible except by the miracles of the Holy Spirit. Um, so if you're going to be a serious disciple, which is what the Anabaptist movement was trying to do in the most, most searing of circumstances, you do it in the power of the Spirit. Our time is just up, and uh, this is, I, I, I appreciate all the questions and appreciate your presence, and tomorrow um, I will
will be focusing on, at least in part, I, my title was meant to be slightly inflammatory, uh, the charismatic spirit. So uh, uh, books are in the back if you uh, care to. And thank you so much for being here. And, uh,